KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we are telling you about the shows, film, and artwork on display around San Diego this weekend. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. The host of NPR's hilarious current events show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, will be in town for a night with Peter Sagal. In a weird way, telling fart jokes to a vast audience is, is just as or if not more important than, you know, trying to speak truth through my art. Plus, science and art come together in a new mural on display, and the San Diego International Film Festival will have an indie about love. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. You might recognize Peter Sagal as the voice and host of NPR's hilarious news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Well, he'll be taking the stage at Balboa Theater for an evening with Peter Sagal on Sunday, October 15th. He'll share stories and insights about everything from his own career to his take on current events. And for a taste of what people might see and hear, here's a snippet of one of his recent live shows for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me in L.A. Millions of people became football fans for the first time this week because Taylor Swift was seen in a luxury box with tight end Travis Kelsey's mother at last Sunday's Kansas City Chiefs game. Everybody was like, oh my God, Travis and Taylor are dating, but it's all pure speculation. She could be dating his mom. <laughs> <laughs> and that voice you hear there joins me now. Peter, welcome to Midday Edition. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Jade. So glad you're here. How you doing? I'm I'm doing fine. Um, I'm at home uh, this week as we talk, getting ready to come out to San Diego with my 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 wife and my two very young children. I have decided to spend uh, my retirement reliving my thirties. So um, <laughs> I've decided to have young children again, which is absolutely exhausting. Chances are, all I'm going to be able to do is uh, on Sunday is just repeat things from Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> and stare blearily at the audience as I try to get over sleep deprivation. So people come out. It should be great. <laughs> I mean, Peter, the last time we spoke was like maybe four years ago when I introduced you to the stage here in San Diego for a Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me show. Um, what have you been up to since then? Well, let's see. Other than uh, helping to create said children, I'm trying to think. I can't remember if it was before or after I published a book uh, about uh, running called The Incomplete Book of Running, which is about my a very unlikely career as an amateur midlife crisis athlete, which led to some success and some adventures. But mainly I've been hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. In fact, uh, we this year, 2023, have been celebrating uh, in our own little way our 25th anniversary on the air. The show launched in January of 1998. 
Um, mm. And so I can't quite believe it, but it's turned into an entire career and uh, a kind of a lifetime. And one of the things I, I'm actually going to be doing on Sunday uh, with the lovely people who come out to the beautiful Balboa Theater is, is sharing uh, what I have figured out to the extent I figured out anything after 25 years of reading and then making fun of the news. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, you know, you could ask you could ask the hosts of, you know, this week in Washington or meet the press or, you know, uh, very respected pundits to tell you what they think about society. Or you can ask the guy who basically does stories about dumb criminals, ridiculous scandals and people smuggling animals in their pants. What I've learned, and I think somehow my answers might be more accurate or at least more mm. useful. Right. I mean, how do you toe that line uh, when you are talking about the news and making humor? I mean, some news is good, some is bad. I mean, yeah, to how put do you it do mildly, it? Th this is a week I have to say that mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we get lucky, and the fact that we're not even going to attempt to show this week on a pre scheduled break has been, uh, well, I don't want to use the word good luck in regards to events, but uh, yeah, it is a problem we grapple with because on the one hand, yeah, there, there's some news, this week is a good example, that's so terrible that, you know, you don't want to even make an attempt to make jokes about it. But on the other hand, that kind of news, I think, makes our show even more necessary. I mean, so many people have told me, certainly during the last few years, including the pandemic and beyond, that getting to the weekend to hear me and my friends just make fun of the news was one of the things that helped them get through a hard time. So it's both impossible but necessary to do mm -hmm. it. And, and, and our, our basic method is to take the stuff that we can work with, which generally speaking does not involve, you know, mass casualty events, but instead is about human frailty. If there was a single theme to everything we do, it's people behaving badly or stupidly or foolishly. And that, uh, fortunately, over 25 years, that has been an inexhaustible resource. You know, mm. there, there, was a, there was a saying um, attributed to an old Democratic uh, Texas politician, or I think his name is Jim Hightower, and he always said, uh, you know, the, the higher the monkey climbs, the uglier the view is. And sometimes that's often true, that giving people power and authority just brings out the funniest things about them. I mean, we started our show almost contemporaneously with uh, Bill Clinton and uh, the what we now call the Lewinsky scandal. We should call it the Clinton scandal. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that was like manna from heaven for a struggling show looking for things to make fun of in the news. And perhaps at some time we worried, you know, like, my God, this is such a hilarious, strange and silly and, you know, salacious scandal. Will there ever be anything like this? Or will we have to quit, you know, when this finally gets settled? No. Like I said, <laughs> the supply has been inexhaustible. Yeah. Oh, keep living. It's like, you know, it's like you got to laugh. You do have to laugh to keep from crying uh, sometimes. Yes. But, you know, in the last 25 years, I mean, since 1998, have you had to change the formula at all because so much has changed we haven't changed the formula per se i mean i think if you were to go back and listen to one of our early shows uh from say i don't know 2000 2002 you, you would find that it's it, at least it it looks like the same we we have you know at that time of course our, our co-host and scorekeeper was carl castle so we had who's carl this time and we had limericks and questions for the panel 
what has changed is uh, our our cast, the quality of our uh, material. I, I when the show began, I, I wrote the show well, not entirely, but uh, mostly by myself. That fortunately isn't the case anymore. Believe me, and no one's gladder than I am that we have this amazing crew of writers and producers and researchers providing me very funny things to say. Um, but we've also tried to update our our cast. I am I am an aging white guy, and my um, my opinions, shall we say, are not as fresh as or useful as they used to be. So we have made sure uh, to surround me on stage and on the air with a lot of younger people from much more diverse backgrounds and interesting perspectives. People who know things that I don't know, people who can see things that I can't see, and frankly, people who can say things that I can't say. And and I think it's that more than anything, just making sure that we, we always have fresh talent on our show with really interesting and funny things to say that as often as not surprising to like me as much or more than the audience uh, that's kept us, I think, relevant. All right. So now you're doing something different. You're talking a bit about your career and wait, wait, don't tell me. So are there any grand revelations you might be sharing with the audience? I, I think well, revela- grand revelation. I think is is a little strong, but I, you know, it's odd because I fell into this career by accident, and that's a story I can tell along with some other things. In that I, I didn't mean to be um, a well public radio host or a comedian or or somebody who did a comedy show for a living. I was supposed to be a serious artist, and and one of the things that I've learned, and I learned it, it, it was difficult, but I I did eventually learn it, is that in a weird way telling fart jokes to a vast audience is is just as or if not more important than, you know, trying to speak truth through my art. I mean, in a weird way, I, my life ended up recapitulating the movie Sullivan's Travels, uh, where a, a Hollywood director known for his comedies uh, decides he wants to do something serious and then in the end finds out that comedies, you know, they're actually pretty good. And one of the things I can talk about, and perhaps will this Sunday, is the notion of fart jokes as service. (laughs) Wait, did you say fart jokes as service? I did. I said fart jokes as public service. (laughs) I won't ask you to give the show away. I won't. No, that. Oh, yeah. That's the big reveal about that. You're not going to believe how I punctuate that point. It's going to be great. (laughs) Clear the room out. (laughs) I mean, and you know you'll be giving really sort of a behind the scenes look at wait, wait, don't tell me as well. To a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, the stories I have to tell all have to do with my career at wait, wait, and the things we've done and, and the people I've met, you know, not only of course, our wonderful cast of panelists, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, uh, OG panelists like Paula Poundstone or Roy Blunt to some of the amazing new comedians that we've had on the show, like Joel Kim Booster, but also, you know, the incredible array of people I've been able to speak to on my silly little radio show, uh, ranging, we've had two presidents, um, uh, one woman, Hillary Clinton, who should have been president and is in another timeline. Um, we've got, uh, you know, an amazing array of scientists and politicians and artists and writers who've come through our show. And what's interesting about all of that is because we're not, you know, a serious show like All Things Considered, Morning Edition, we're able to talk to them about other things than what made them famous, you know, be it their political stances or even their work as artists. And and sometimes we've had these amazing, wonderful revelations as we've done it about what kind of people they are. 
So yeah, a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about is about some of the amazing places and places I've gone, experiences I've had, and most importantly, people I've met doing this very silly, but as we've discussed, kind of important radio show. Yeah, I would imagine it's such a huge honor to be able to do all that. Yeah, it, oh, it is. It absolutely is. And you know, uh, there are stories I could tell, and might, in fact, this very Sunday, about <laughs> the ways I have learned that our show, our silly show, our hour of limericks and jokes and gags and too many terrible puns to mention, has really brought some people a necessary joy, a necessary relief. You know, I mean, I, I met a woman just in Los Angeles after the you know the show that you played a clip from a little while ago, mm-hmm. who came to me and and said, "Oh, I'm here. You know, this was yours, my wife's favorite. This was my wife's favorite show." And I looked at a woman standing next to her and I said, "Oh, is that your wife?" And expecting to say hello, and she said, "No, my wife actually passed away six months ago, but this was her favorite show." And I always told her that I'd bring her someday, and and then she died, and. And I called and I got free tickets and I just couldn't believe it happened. I thought it was Providence or her looking down at me. And so I, I decided to come. Even if I couldn't come with her, I'd come for her. And by this time, of course, she's crying and I'm crying. And, you know, it's, again, it's not the sort of thing you might expect when you're telling uh, fart jokes at, you know, on weekend mornings. But it has happened and it, and it happens repeatedly enough to know that I am, in fact, uh, the luckiest guy in the face of the earth. Yeah, you don't expect to touch people's lives like that, but but in fact you do. Um, you've said in interviews before that uh, when you were younger, you were quote obsessed with the person you wanted to be. Do you yes. have any insights or wisdom you'd like to share with people uh, who might be going through something similar? I do, and 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 this is also something that I, I might talk about Sunday. And it's slightly more serious than some of the things I usually do. That's true. I, I was I was uh, both very ambitious as a young man and and a little nervous and you know insecure and and wanted and just constantly focused on you know making it and getting to those levels of I don't know fame, wealth, respect, whatever you people, especially when young, aspire to. And and there was a period in my life which I'm not particularly proud of where I figured the achievements that I would you know inevitably get, right, given my talent, um, I'm being sarcastic, and I make that emoji on the radio, <laughs> uh, that my achievements would justify anything I did to get them, including the way I, I treated people and the way I carried myself in the world. And it was later, a little too much later, but still in time for me to, to learn from this insight, that this was all wrong, that I and, and these people like me who were just focusing on the kind of person or, or the person they want to be should rather focus on being the kind of person they want to be with, right? Mm -hmm. Because you think about it, and that person I just described, that person who has those ambitions and is going to do anything to get them, sometimes they're praised, you know, in all these business books in the airports, and we have these biographies of successful entrepreneurs, and we talk about, like, all the things they did and all the the people they stepped over to get there where they were, the power of the will. Yeah, I don't want to hang out with those people. The people I most love in this world and want to be with are the, like the kind people and the thoughtful people and the happy people who are not constantly worrying about the next thing, who aren't seeing other people as rungs in a ladder that they can use to get higher, but as other people who deserve compassion and kindness. And I've used that insight, often imperfectly, to guide my actions and choices for a while now. And 
maybe it's you know a luxury of also being kind of old and not having to worry so much but at the same time putting aside all those silly ambitions and instead aspiring to be again the kind of person I'd want to be with has uh, worked out pretty well that's a great perspective I've been speaking with Peter Sagal, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You can see him take the stage at the Balboa Theater on Sunday, October 15th. Peter, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, it has been absolutely a joy, and I'm looking forward to everybody who might want to come out on Sunday night. I promise it will be funny, and I promise I will tell you all about Paula Poundstone. Up next, if you're looking for art this weekend, we'll tell you where you can find a science-inspired mural. The mural looks like the start of a hiking trail. You're heading off towards mountains, uh, walking past a variety of local plants. And then as you look up, the sky also looks like the ocean. That's ahead. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Welcome back to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. For our weekend preview, we have a massive science-inspired mural, a musical perfect for the spooky season, and lots more. Joining me with all the details is KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here as always. So let's start with a new mural at the San Diego Natural History Museum. As they look towards their 150th anniversary next year, they've got this thing happening. What can you tell us about it? Right. So this is a huge mural and it's in the museum's main atrium, which is open and visible from three stories. It's by artist Eva Strubel, who is this incredible local artist. Uh, She's a professor at SCSU as well. The mural is called Frazera and it's inspired by specimens from the museum's collection. Like there's these beautiful endangered butterflies, rocks like, like pegmatite and botanicals like the namesake Frazera perii. And, and also yucca and oak. The mural looks like the start of a hiking trail. You're heading off towards mountains, uh, walking past a variety of local plants. And then as you look up, the sky also looks like the ocean. So in some ways, it's kind of disorienting, a little surreal. And in another sense, it's just this really cool amalgamation of, of the best of our region. And I recently went to the museum when she was installing it. There were families and museum goers passing by and stopping to watch. And I asked her to talk a little bit about the inspiration and what kind of triggered this mural. So the museum sort of prompted me with the idea of bursting with biodiversity and in this region in San Diego and the Baja region and so I wanted to combine a lot of aspects of the landscape large and small in this piece so going from Iron Mountain a place where I love to go hiking down to the very small Kino checker spot butterfly, which is a tiny endangered butterfly that we have here and only exists in a few small areas uh, locally. Yeah, I wanted to bring in a lot of the plants that I, that I get to see hiking all throughout the year here in San Diego County, from yucca to sages to, I mean, the laurel sumac that's everywhere, but also something like the Frazera paryi, which is a you know, somewhat more unusual flower that lives here that I'm trying to bring front and center. It's, it's, it's a tiny flower that's really big in the painting, in the foreground. 
And then I wanted it to be an expressive painting that feels loose and doesn't feel like a photograph, like something that was just pasted up on the wall, but that has a, you know, our hand in it. And, you know, it's also inspired by Eva Strubel's love for nature. Uh, one of the classes that she teaches at San Diego State is an art class where she takes the class out hiking and they'll observe things and draw them. And she said that that kind of slow observation is, is kind of a shared characteristic of both the drawing process and field science. And she also mentioned there that she does a lot of hiking and, and it's modeled after the trails up Iron Mountain. But there's also that playful element where she she plays with scale, the, the texture of the smaller rocks becomes these mountains. The ocean subs in for the sky. And I can imagine kids seeing this and then being inspired to, to make their own big scene using like tufts of plants for trees uh, or little rocks that they found for our mountains. And, and she talked a little bit about this when I, I asked her how different it felt uh, working in a science museum versus a, an art space or working on studio work. And, and she kind of touched on, on that pairing of science and of play. Well, it's such an amazing risk that they took to hire an artist to do something here because I think obviously they don't want to portray anything you know, that's not factual in the museum. And so this piece is more playful and it's not just about facts per se. I mean, it, it's factual on certain levels, but it's also playing with scale, playing with color. So I was trying to walk that line between showing things that I found in the collection here and that I've talked to the botanist about while also letting it be loose, open, colorful, surprising, I guess. It would be really nice if people can be surprised and see new things in it every time they walk by. And also when I was there at the Natural History Museum, she had students from SCSU as well as San Diego High School helping out. And yeah, it's just really great to see this large work from an artist like Eva Strubel. She works with such a variety of formats, um, primarily textiles. So this is really, really special. And it's planned to be finished by Friday. Um, but if not, it's a, a treat to see these things in progress. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So this is on view now at the Natural History Museum. And October also happens to be Kids Free Month. Yeah, and, and this is a program of the San Diego Museum Council. It's one of their annual Arts Accessibility Months. And so throughout the month of October, dozens of museums offer free kids' admission when they're with a paid adult. And I will point out that a bunch of the museums and the attractions in the, the participating institutions list, they're, they're already free for kids in the first place. But if you are looking for a deal, the NAT is one choice for you. So with every adult to the Natural History Museum, you get free admission for two kids 12 and under. There is a coupon you, you requested online. It's pretty instant. Um, then you can either print it out or just show your phone at the admissions counter. And also for Kids Free Month, um, a couple other standouts. There's probably the Birch Aquarium, Living Coast Discovery Center, the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park, and the New Children's Museum. The specific offer varies by, by location, um, and you can get the vouchers online at sandiegomuseumcouncil.org. It all ends October 31st. Now let's talk about some visual art. You have some new contemporary art and a fresh look at a traditional art form. So what's new in the galleries this week? So first is Evan Tyler at Art Produce. His exhibit is called Systemic Glitch, and it opens with a reception on Saturday from 5 to 7. 
Evan Tyler is a multidisciplinary artist who works primarily in fiber arts and, and traditional craft like dyeing and weaving textiles. And he was artist in residence at Art Produce last summer, so we all kind of got a glimpse of his work for the first time there. This exhibit, though, has been brewing for, for Tyler since June 2nd, 2020. And um, if you remember, that was when people were posting a black square on Instagram in the days following the murder of George Floyd, kind of as a way of protesting police brutality and systemic racism. And for Evan Tyler, he's he's remembering that and looking at now that we're in 2023, and it's hard to find connections to any meaningful change that happened as a result of those black squares. So he's asking all these questions about what that act meant. And he's manifested these black squares as these glitchy renderings on his woven textiles. So they're made of natural dyes and wool, and then he has these black stripes interrupting the piece. There's also this kind of like hyper-digital look to it, which is a really thoughtful contrast to the, the softness of the materials and also the, the ancient craft of, of weaving. And it opens Saturday and it's on view through November 18th at Art Produce that's in North Park. And speaking of ancient craft, there's a new exhibit at the Menge that gives new life to the Japanese art form washi. Tell me about that. So washi is a, a paper craft. They use strong natural fibers. It's primarily used for painting or origami or calligraphy. And for this exhibit, they're showcasing nine contemporary Japanese artists who are working with washi in multi-dimensional ways. Lots of texture, their sculptures and, and installation works. And the exhibit's called Washi Transform. So it's intended to reimagine and reframe how we think of this paper practice and what it can do there's some abstract pieces and even filigree text intricate intricate works one of my favorites is this they're like tangles of paper string that almost look like botanicals or maybe even fiber optics and there's some that are these they're made into beautiful glowing light fixtures it's it's an incredibly diverse exhibit there's lots of of things you wouldn't even imagine are paper. And it's a touring exhibit. It opens Saturday at the Mingay, and it's on view until early January. It's also time for the 11th annual San Diego Zine Fest, which is happening all weekend at Bread and Salt in Logan Heights. What's happening at the fest? So it's it's like a big art and book fair with a bunch of artists, publishers, zine makers, all displaying and selling their wares. And zines are so diverse. You'll find some that are bound, more looking like traditional books. And then there are some that are literally just folded pieces of paper. There's artworks and prints and this fest has also a music program. They filled the entire day with DJs and then a few live performance spots on Sunday. It's going to be noon to six each day. There's tons of exhibitors, 50 or more each day. Some of the ones that stood out to me are 31G, the artist Hate Paste, SDSU Zine Club, Radical History Club, Mi Vida Logan, Particle FM, and like I said, so many. It's free. It's all ages. And also they said that dogs are welcome. I feel like that's that's important. <laughs> well, everyone loves their dog. <laughs> and so this is also in conjunction with the Barrio Art Crawl, right? Right. So the Barrio Art Crawl runs from noon to eight. And after you're done at the Zine Fest, you can pop over to Por Vida Gallery. It's, it's nearby. Um, they're having a zine library installation and then visual art by some of the zine makers. And, and from there, you can also tour all 
all the other shops and galleries and restaurants along Logan Avenue. And you could also linger at Bread and Salt. They're always open until 8 o'clock on Barrio Art Call nights. And this weekend in particular, it's the final day to see Aaron Estrada's works in his exhibit at Best Practice. Um, His work is really cool. And there's plenty on view in the other galleries. All right, so let's switch gears and talk about a couple of performances we can catch this weekend. Uh, in theater, here's a fun one that's just perfect for the Halloween season, the Adams Family Musical. Tell me about that. Right. So this is San Diego Musical Theater. They're producing this at their Kearney Mesa performance venue. Um, it's it's a production of the 2009 Broadway musical. We're, we're listening to the original Broadway cast recording now when Nathan Lane had, had the role of Gomez. Adams. We gather to honor the great cycle of life and death. Come, every member of our clan, living, dead, and undecided, and let us celebrate what it is to be an Adams. When you're an Adams. The musical is inspired by the old comic series, the comic strip in The New Yorker. It was by Charles Adams, and that was basically the source material for anything Adams Family, the movies, the TV show in the 1960s, and of course, Netflix's Wednesday. And the play follows a moment in the Adams Family life when Wednesday Adams brings home her fiance and his parents as, as a surprise. So you can imagine how the Adams Family reacts. Uh, it's a big production. They have a huge cast in what is a pretty intimate venue, so it'll be a really great experience. It's on stage now through October 29th with shows Wednesday through Sunday. And next you have a concert of acoustic music. Right, so this kicks off the Athenaeum's Acoustic Evening Series, which it's celebrating its 15-year anniversary. They're having four Friday nights in October and November. They include a wide range of acoustic musicians. There's jazz, singer-songwriters, Latin, and and folk performers. And this Friday night uh, features singer-songwriters Bree Schillings and Sierra Martins, and also Jamie Shadowlight. I'm going to spotlight Jamie Shadowlight a little here. She's known as, as an electric violinist, but also performs acoustic guitar and piano, and she sings. This is her 2022 single called Flow to Fly. The summer fields of flowers blooming, prophecy and stream of the shift of this rebirth. And Jamie Shadowlight has spent the last six months or so in and out of the hospital undergoing treatment for advanced stage cancer. This Friday, she'll be performing songs that she's written about this healing process and and the year that she's gone through. She's a really dynamic and expressive performer and super gifted. And the way she talks about healing and her journey on social media, she's been posting regularly. It's really beautiful. So this should be a powerful experience, seeing her return to the stage. That's uh, Jamie Shadowlight with Brian Schillings and Sierra Martins at the Athenaeum in La Jolla on Friday at 7.30. Something to definitely check out. You can find details on these and more arts events or sign up for Julia's weekly KPBS arts newsletter at kpbs.org arts. I've been speaking with Julia Dixon-Evans, KPBS arts editor. Thank you so much for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me, Jade. Each other. We belong to the 
Coming up, Beth Accomando speaks with a local filmmaker ahead of this year's San Diego International Film Festival. She did this wonderful job of, you know, integrating the questions and their answers and then revealing these things about these characters. And that's why what I loved about the, the story was that it was like this, this peeling of the onion, you know, that you kept learning more about these characters. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. San Diego International Film Festival kicks off next Wednesday at the Museum of Photographic Arts and then moves to the AMC 14 theaters at UTC. The festival showcases Hollywood and foreign films, but also carves out space for films with a San Diego connection. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando speaks with local filmmaker Michael Foster about his romantic drama called To Fall in Love, which began as a play more than five years ago. Michael, you are going to be having the West Coast premiere of To Fall in Love at the San Diego International Film Festival. And while this is a new film, it has a long history. So give me a little background. Yeah, so this uh, story was originally written as a play by Jennifer Lane. And then uh, we had done a table read with the two uh, leading actors. And we had done the reading, and then in the reading, I was so moved by this story that I, I just said out loud, this should be a movie. And then we all got excited about the possibility of this being a movie. Then they took it to Fringe, and they did several performances at Fringe. And we had a time limit because Beth Gallagher, who was the lead actress in this film, she had to go to Scotland. So we shot this as a no-budget movie over two days. But it was like a feature-length 48-hour film, <laughs> so so it, it was really rushed, and as a result, it it, it did suffer from technical issues uh, all throughout. And nobody's fault. It's just we were moving so fast. I edited that version of it, and eventually it caught the attention. The play caught the attention of of somebody uh, here from San Diego who wanted to know what Beth and Eric wanted to do next. And they wanted to remake the movie, and they knew I wanted to remake the movie for the technical reasons. And so they put that on the table. And so this person was willing to, to finance this new version of it. And this is the version now that I'm proud of and I'm proud to have in the San Diego Film Festival. And I'm proud that it's going to be seen. And the initial kind of catalyst for this idea came from a New York Times article. And what was that about? Yes, as, as I understand it and remember it, Jenny was reading a New York Times article about the 36 questions to fall in love. And the, the New York Times article was to fall in love with anyone, do this. And her play was called the exact same thing. It was called To Fall in Love With Anyone, Do This. And it acknowledged the New York Times article in the play. It acknowledged that the questions are not, they're not owned by the New York Times. It, it, it's a separate thing, but the New York Times did an article about those questions and about the science behind those questions. So that was the inspiration for Jenny to write the play. And, it, and she did this wonderful job of integrating the questions and their answers and then revealing these things about these characters. And that's why, what I loved about the, the story was that it was like this, this peeling of the onion, you know, that you kept learning more about these characters as you should. And as you, if you did it in real life with your partner, you would learn lots of information about your partner. You just start. Okay, let's start. <laughs> Ladies first. You could invite anyone in the world to dinner, who would it be? Arnold Palmer. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, anyone? I mean, do they have to be living or 
Doesn't say. Practically speaking, you can't invite a dead person to dinner. I mean, not with that attitude. George R.R. R. Martin. Really? Yeah. So I could go all Kathy Bates misery on his ass, right? Like, oh, hey, George, enjoy the aperitifs, but also I'm going to chain you to this radiator until you finish your fucking books. He's, like, super old. Well, that kind of stress might just send him in a cardiac arrest, but it's a good answer. It's your turn. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Why? Why? Why isn't part of the question? A little side note, we when we made the first version of the movie, we have no idea how the New York Times heard about this small, no-budget movie, but we did get a cease and desist letter from them saying that we could not go forward with this movie. And they were under the impression that we were doing a movie about their article. They came back to us. Their attorneys came back and said, you know what? You guys didn't do anything wrong. You mentioned the New York Times article. You give us credit for that. Great. But you know what? We're not comfortable with you using the title of our article. So then we just shortened it and called it To Fall in Love. So the original version was actually To Fall in Love with Anyone Do This. This one is called To Fall in Love. So when Beth Gallagher and Eric Casolini kind of ran the a version of this at Fringe, how did you view that? Was that kind of a proof of concept kind of moment? Yeah, I had loved the script so much. I mean, I heard the reading twice and I actually found myself tearing up at the second reading because they were Beth and Eric were a little bit more into character and they were really kind of like adding some emotion to the reading and then Fringe was kind of like for me I wanted to see how the audience responded to it and the audience responded amazingly well to it like they I could hear sniffling in the audience and I was like oh wow it's like it's really hitting the right marks and they were laughing at all the right places and I thought okay this this has potential to be a very small independent film because the story is what's great, right? And so it was validation for me that it could work as a movie because it's it's the same story. So the only thing I asked Jenny to do for the movie is just open it up because the play took place in a single apartment. Well, one of the things I appreciate about the film is that when you are an independent filmmaker and you don't have a lot of money, your ability to have a big cast or lots of locations is very limited. But the format for this allows you to work with limited locations and a small cast without it feeling like that is a limitation. I'm glad you feel that way. I will also tell you that it's somewhat deliberate because another inspiration for me is the original Rocky. And if you remember that movie, you'll remember that any time that he is with Adrian, they didn't have a lot of extras around them. They shot their scenes very isolated too, right? Ice rink, nobody around. Even on the street, one guy walks by so that Rocky can make a comment about him. But it's almost like those two are in their own world and that nothing around them exists because they're, they're just into each other. They're focused on each other. And I've always liked that idea. And so that was kind of what I was going to go for too. It was like, we'll start it in this coffee shop with people in there. But as they begin to have these conversations and answer these questions, I wanted to have less and less people around them. Just the idea was that they were going to be in their own world and isolated from the world. Well, you bring up this idea of isolation. And this film was shot right after the pandemic mm. when all of us had been going through isolation. Right. So talk a little bit about the process of making a film coming right out of the pandemic. Uh, that was, uh, I haven't really thought about this for a long time, but it was very nerve wracking and, and even frustrating because the woman who financed the entire movie, she understood the difficulties of the pandemic. She understood the, the severity of, of the virus, but she was 
also convinced that we could be safe enough to do this during the pandemic. And not everybody on our cast and crew felt comfortable with it because we were still hearing about people dying and, and being hospitalized. So we kind of kept holding her off and telling her that we weren't comfortable and we weren't going to move forward with it. And she would say, you know, it's just going to be in a, in a living room or whatever. So, you know, we would have to explain to her that, that there's a crew. <laughs> so there's more than just the two people in the camera. Eventually, she understood. And eventually, she, she was okay with us pushing back the, the shoot date. We waited until we were all vaccinated. And then we all still masked behind the camera. But that was difficult. It was difficult to wear those masks. It was difficult to make sure everybody felt comfortable because it was, I mean, I was still at that point where I didn't want to shake anybody's hand. I didn't want to like touch anybody. But at the same time, you kind of wanted that connection, right? And I think it was the first time I'd been out of the house for a while making this movie. So, but yeah, very strange, awkward time. But it also works because it's a small story with a very intimate story with just, for the most part, two characters. So it kind of worked out for the best. Do you think the coming out of the pandemic, I'm just wondering if kind of the mood of the pandemic, how that influenced just the tone of the performances and the tone of your directing too? I don't think the pandemic affected anything because they had been, or they had already done the play a number of times and the play, their performances for the most part was the same on the stage as it was in the movie. In the movie, though, because it's a camera and there's a microphone, they didn't have to be as big as they had to be on the stage. So the only adjustments I made as a director for the movie was let's be quieter, let's be more intimate. Like when they're in the bedroom, it's okay to like just sit there as opposed to getting up and gesturing and <laughs> saying saying your, your thing and then sitting back down. Or I mean, it was very, very lively on stage, but for a camera and for two people in a room, it just felt unnatural to have them move around so much. So I, I encourage them to just kind of stay put. And we found places where that they, they could move around on the bed and or around the room. But for the most part, I kind of liked the stillness of things. And when things were getting kind of serious, I liked them to be as still as possible. But as far as like the mood, yes, there was definitely a quietness on the set at all, pretty much at all times because we're wearing those masks and it's hard to communicate to the other crew members, you know, with a mask on. And it was just difficult. So from that perspective, it was, uh, I think there was still a little bit of concern. We were all vaccinated, but we didn't really know what that meant. We were hoping that we were okay. And for the most part, I, I don't, I, I don't, no one on the set got sick. So for the most part, I think the masks and the, the vaccinations worked. So. And what is it like shooting a small, intense little drama like this on mostly a single location? Um, it has its challenges, right? I mean, you you get these actors who do these very intense scenes and you pray that the camera's in focus. Or you pray that there isn't some weird thing that happened in the audio or, or, or something, you know. To Eric and Beth's credit, they were always prepared with their lines. And so, they, they again, they, they, know, they knew these characters very well. Uh, Eliane was fantastic because she, you know, she was operating the camera as well. And she was, she understood that I wanted long takes and I wanted to be able to uh, have these 10 minute takes if it, if it required that. And I would, we would attempt to do these Spielbergian type oneers that didn't always work out because I'm not Spielberg <laughs> and I don't have his, his eye for changing up compositions in a single take, but we worked with those types of things. We try to get those things. And, and Ellie was amazing because she would work with me and figure out how to pull off these oneers and hold that camera as steady as possible because she wasn't on a, um, a gimbal. She was hand-holding this thing. And so uh, it was amazing to watch her go through a 10-minute take and then at the end of it say, hey, we got a little out of focus uh, or something happened. Let's do another one. And it's like, wow, you want to go again? Great. Okay, fantastic. So that was good. 
And you live here in San Diego. And what is the filmmaking community like here? How easy is it to make an independent film? Uh, in San Diego, it can be pretty easy to make an independent film, I think, because you have uh, several opportunities in this community, whether it's the 48's, uh, 48 hour film festivals or just student projects. You know, there's SDSU that has a, a film department or, or a media department. So I think for the most part, it's easy. I think what, what is hard in San Diego is to get a movie that has any money behind it. That's the challenge, right? I think when you see the amount of films that come out of San Diego, most of them don't have a whole lot of money. But there's just no way to raise money in San Diego, at least not that I'm aware of. So for us to have this opportunity to have a little bit of money behind it um, was just extraordinary for me. So this is definitely the biggest budget I've worked on, even though it's still small. But I think it's bigger than, generally speaking, I think it's bigger than most San Diego productions. Well, I have to say that I got introduced to your work, not because of a romantic drama that's a feature film, but because you made a horror short called Hush, which was brilliant, I thought. And both Hush and To Fall in Love feature very strong female characters. Is that something that appeals to you as a filmmaker? Absolutely. I have always been drawn to strong female characters through the works of other uh, filmmakers that I that I love. I'll start with Spielberg, right? His early work, Close Encounters, Sugarland Express, very strong female characters. And I've always been aware of that. Even Poltergeist, you know, even though he questionably didn't direct it, but the mother is like a, such a strong presence, right? She's the one that she's the protector of those kids. But if you go through his filmography, uh, his early filmography before he became a dad, like even E.T., E.T., there's a mom who's there the father's not even present but also the works of like ridley scott right with alien and having a strong female lead played by sigourney weaver but then thelma and louise i've always that, that's always appealed to me I, it, it appeals to me to have women who can shine and play these incredible parts not because they're women but there's something different about that it's it's a little it's a little unexpected because men tend to dominate the stories. So whenever you find a female lead, it's always exciting. And I and I, I just find that it it tends to, if, like if you look at a movie like Kill Bill, for instance, right? You don't quite know what her capabilities are, or what, what she can do. But if that movie had starred, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme or a guy or a man, you, you know where this is going. You know that he's going to prevail. And I think the trick about having strong female leads is you don't always quite predict where it's going to go. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about To Fall in Love and good luck with the screening. Thank you very much, Beth. Thanks for having me. That was Beth Accomando speaking with filmmaker Michael Foster. His feature, To Fall in Love, will have its West Coast premiere next Thursday at the San Diego International Film Festival. The festival runs October 18th through the 22nd. That's our show for today. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. The Roundtable is here tomorrow at noon. And, you know, if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. Before we go, I want to thank the Midday Edition team. Brooke Ruth, Andrew Bracken, Juliana Domingo, Laura McCaffrey, and Ariana Clay are the producing team. Julia Dixon-Evans and Beth Accomando contribute art segments. Our technical producers are Rebecca Chacon and Adrian Villalobos. The music you're hearing is from San Diego's own Surefire Soul Ensemble. I'm your host, Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here Monday. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.